Hi, I'm Daniel Bennett, and welcome to The Grand Walks. I work as the technical director at The Grand, managing the backstage crew to bring magic to our stage. Since the pandemic is preventing us from making theatre, I am focusing the spotlight out into the community to learn more about some London locals, their favourite places, and what makes them London proud. By now, hopefully you're standing at the starting place of this walk, which is the west end of Beaconsfield Avenue on the pedestrian path that leads to Horton and Warncliffe. I hope you've downloaded the audio file and have looked at a map to know which route we're going to walk together today. Listen for me giving location markers throughout the walk. If you get behind where we are, feel free to give us a pause. I swear, we won't be offended. If you get behind, please slow down a bit until we catch up. At the corner of Beaconsfield and Wortley, we'll stop for a quick moment to admire the view. I'll let you know when it's time to get those feet walking again. Today, we are walking with award-winning writer Emma Donahue. She is best known for her fiction with titles such as Room and The Wonder, but also writes for film and stage. Before we get started, I'd like to pass it over to Lacey George, costumer at the Grand, to start us off with a land acknowledgement. When you hear Emma's voice, it's time to start the walk. Wase abno kwendishnikaz, anishna be kwenin dao, kikonong minwa zogin donjaba, mjike dodem, mandal kwa don sun, jigjiganeshi kwa oshe yan, and jaunong kuro kwa kobdo sun. Hello, friends, my name is Lacey also known as Wase Abunokwe. I'm the daughter of Mandalkwe, the granddaughter of Jigjiganeshikwe, and the great-granddaughter of Kurokwe. I'm an Anishinaabe woman of, from the Turtle Clan. My mother's family comes from Saugeen First Nation in the Bruce Peninsula along the Saugeen River. My father's family is from Kikonong, which is Kettle Point First Nation, as well as Ojodanong, which is Stony Point First Nation, both of which are along the shores of Lake Huron. My ancestors have lived, loved, laughed, and wept on this land for many, many generations. I honor those who came before us, cared for us, and loved us so that we could be here right now, living in a good way. This walk was recorded in London, Ontario, the traditional lands of the Ottawaterin, also known as the Neutral People, and territories associated with the various treaties of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, and Lenapewak. Locally, there are three First Nations communities. They are the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, the Oneida Nation of the Thames, and the Muncie Delaware Nation. We would also like to recognize the urban indigenous population comprised of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. We acknowledge the traditional lands upon which we operate, as well as all the sacred waterways. So tell me where we're starting this walk today. We're on Beaconsfield, which is the, um, the last road north in Wortley Village. I don't know, does it quite count as officially Wortley Village, but it's, it's the last bit of this neighborhood um, before you head downtown. And this is where Chris and I came to rent in, oh, maybe 1996, 1996. So it's a long time ago now. And um, I remember learning to, or attempting to learn to rollerblade on this road. Because <laughs> um, it's a nice quiet road, you know, it's, it's, it's on a loop, it's not a through road to anywhere. So I'd stumble along on my rollerblades and I remember the neighbours sitting on their porches and laughing amiably, you know. In Ireland we don't have porches, right? So, so the interactions with the neighbours that you get in an area like this where there are porches, I love it. It's very social, it's very open. Yeah, so why don't you tell me the story about how you arrived in London and arrived here on Beaconsfield Street? Sure, well, I, I'm from Dublin, and um, when I was 20, I went to England to do a PhD at Cambridge, thinking that after that I'd probably go back to Ireland, but I fell in love with a Canadian, and so I was obliged, really, to, uh, to follow her to Canada. Now, luckily, I got to do it 
gradually. So I came maybe one month in three for three years. So by the time I actually settled down in London, Ontario, I knew loads of people here. I knew the city. I knew there were things about it I liked. Several of those things immediately closed down. I <laughs> liked the New Yorker cinema and the women's bookstore. But still, you know, I was, I was getting fond of the place already. So it wasn't quite as scary as moving somewhere without knowing anybody. Um, and I've been here ever since. And um, it's always been a very handy sort of base in that it's, it's a pretty relaxed place to live, I find, compared with my friends who are in really big cities. So for someone who's, until this year, had a lot of travel, um, it makes a... It makes a great kind of low-stress base place to live. Mm -hmm. So you move here for love? Indeed. Um, I once said that at a reading and, and someone in the crowd said, love of Canada? <laughs> I was so amused at the idea that you'd be like, Canada on the basis of merit alone is the country I must live. Because <laughs> of course Canada has many merits, so it's plausible that you could move here for love of Canada. But you know, it's much more likely you'd fall for someone. And uh, so, speaking about merits, what do you think the, the, your favourite thing about Wortley Village is? I know it seems a petty point, but I really enjoyed the architecture. And, um, you know, during quarantine, I've been strolling around a lot with the kids, you know, trying to get them out of the house for little walks. And the houses are all different, you know, there's some really grand, fancy-looking Victorian mansions, and then tiny little shabby, you know, one-storey sheds, and it's a, it's a real mixture. And I always enjoy the kind of quirkiness of all the houses being different from each other. Um, something else I really like is that it's villagey, meaning people will actually go on foot to the grocery store, um, the cafes, that kind of thing. So that gives it a bit more of a community feel than you would get if it was a place that people just drove to, you know? I can't stand the, the classic sort of burbs with their crescents and their you know, lack of sidewalks and everybody driving everywhere. So I like the, the villaginess of Wortley Village. And I remember a few years after I got here, um, they proposed to shut down our grocery store, which is a value mart, and replace it. And there was mass protest and, and they kept the grocery store. And I remember being quite impressed that there was enough of a community to actually pull together and, you know, block a change that we didn't want. So I liked that. People are walking around on foot. What do you think that fosters here? People have um, random conversations. Uh, they bump into each other. Um, for instance, un until COVID, I, I would go and work quite often um, at the Black Walnut Cafe, and I would always talk to people there. And you know, a writing life is a fairly solitary one. So there's random conversations you have with neighbors on their porches or people in the cafe. Um, I think they, they're good for networking in the best sense. I don't mean growing your business necessarily, but um, human contact and becoming aware of you know, what people around you care about and what their priorities are. Um, so I, I just like that. I, you know, North America is more of a car culture than Europe. And so I would feel very alienated if I had settled in a part of North America that was all about driving everywhere. So um, yeah, it's the, I, I really like the, the human scale of things. And then there are events like the, um, it's now twice yearly gathering on the green when you'll get lots of, um, community organizations and little jewelry stalls and so on, setting up little little stalls on the green. So it has a kind of, you know, medieval fair vibe. Um, <laughs> I find it a very friendly area. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's cool, right? We, none of us would claim that. It's not particularly funky. Old East seems much funkier and obviously houses are cheaper there so you get a much better mix of people. Here, you know, the, the price of the houses is a factor, but still there are, there are small um, kind of, um, you know, buildings where lots of people rent or apartment buildings and so on. So it's not all big houses. Mm -hmm. I find, by contrast, we lived in Old North for a little bit and I found mm -hmm. that a bit more chilly, mm -hmm. you know high-value houses and less chumminess. Uh, so we're here at the corner of Beaconsfield and Wortley, and I love looking at the downtown core and seeing the high-rises, but surrounded by the city. As you think about how this has changed, this view over the last uh, number of years you've been here, what pops into your mind? Well, I'm thinking there have been some real triumphs, you know, and um, the new Covent Garden Market is such an amazing sort of multi-purpose space. Our daughter is in a theatre company there, Original Kids, um, and, you know, uh, in, when she has breaks between rehearsals, she goes down and gets food there, and there's always something on, and there are craft fairs and so on, so that's an amazing space. Um, I'm looking at the, the new high-rises, uh, which is a chain, change, but so much of it stays the same. I love having the river at the heart of the city, and mm -hmm. um, the way it... it heads off in several directions. Um, I've really treasured the bike paths recently. Um, actually, what's really striking me at this corner is that it all looks very lovely, but you know, I know some people have been living under those trees over there. You know? right. So it's the kind of thing you don't see in a postcard, isn't it? You mm -hmm. know, that you'd have hidden homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so grateful we have as much in the way of nature as we do and open spaces, say, um, the, uh, the Thames, Thames Park, just to our right. I was there this morning swimming in their Olympic-sized outdoor pool. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so um, I, I think it would be a shame if this city let the balance tip too much towards buildings and not enough nature, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's continue on. So as we head uh, south down Wortley Road here, uh, we'll make a right. And I, I agree, you know, it's during the pandemic, uh, we've all been uh, outside a lot more and enjoying the nature, you know, something that should be cherished in the uh, cherished in the city. And I would read, you know, I'd read articles by journalists in Toronto and it would sound way more dystopian because they were like, I can't go for a walk without being within six feet of everybody, you know, um, mm -hmm. or, or kids who uh, wanted to play basketball and it was taped off, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think having relatively spacious streets here and there always been, it was always possible to go for walks. Um, even if things like playgrounds were officially shut. So I found that really helped us keep our sanity here. Mm -hmm. What have you been thinking most about during the pandemic? Oh, I've been uh, working at full tilt, really. Um, though with more comfort television added, definitely, you know, I'm finding uh, The Office and Schitt's Creek definitely helped to get through the days too. <laughs> I watched all six seasons <laughs> of Schitt's Creek. I love it. <laughs> it's superb. Um, I, I must admit I've been distracted. You know, I've done more of that, you know, doom scrolling of social media than I would usually do. Um, because I write a lot of historical fiction, I often spend my days, you know, in the 17th century or somewhere far, far away. Um, but I have to say during, during COVID, I've definitely been more preoccupied with current times, you know. Um, but on the other hand, it's been quite a nice period because I'm used to traveling so much. You know, usually in launching a new book, I would be traveling all over the place, at least two weeks in the States, for instance, just nonstop self-promotion. Um, and now I'm doing all that, but online, and it takes up much less of your day, you know, compared with having to fly to another city and stay overnight just to do one event. Um, doing it on Zoom is uh, 
leaves a lot more time for life, you know. Mm -hmm. So that blank calendar in the kitchen, I look at it in amazement <laughs> and I'm like, it's been blank since mid-March and I seem to be okay with that. Yeah. Maybe not forever, but right now it's, it's all been quite relaxing. And so now that you're doing these events over Zoom, how has your relationship to uh, your readers changed? Well, I realized that, you know, the thing about doing um, uh, a traditional book tour is that it prioritizes big cities. So I have readers in, say, San Francisco or Boston who would come to my reading every time I do a reading there. So there's a kind of a prioritizing of the, the big city readers. And with, with events on Instagram Live or Facebook Live, um, you can be reaching anybody in the world. So it's not as fun an event for me. I'm not, you know, having a nice dinner out with the organizers and dressing up and going somewhere. But on the other hand, I'll suddenly see that there's somebody chiming in from Iowa, somebody chiming in from Argentina. Um, and again, people can access your um, event afterwards. So there's a real, there's a kind of a, a long tail in that often maybe 300 people will come to an event on the day, but then 2,000 will the following week. So I realize, you know, it's a different way of accessing readers and I can certainly get to the far away ones more than I used to. And of course, how I really reach my readers is through my books, you know, that, that amazing sort of intimate moment of my book getting into their head. Um, that doesn't depend on me doing any events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting how we've increased uh, accessibility to predominantly everything uh, over the course of the, the pandemic. Well, for instance, you know, I, I love theatre, obviously, and I've always not only gone to plays that are on locally, both, you know, community plays here and professional ones at places like the Grand, but I've done trips to Toronto for theatre, and then when we've been in England and Ireland, I've seen theatre. But I've always thought of it as something I had to go to cities for, and I've never bothered watching any online because it seemed like, why would you stoop to that? It's not the same thing. But of course, I've had to stoop. So I think after about two weeks of quarantine and feeling so stressed out, we watched one of the National Theatre Live's performances. It was um, One Man, Two Governors. And it was so funny. And it was the first time I relaxed during that lockdown period. And I realized, okay, this may not be live theater as I know and love it, but it's a lot better than nothing. Um, so I've been watching lots of, lots of theater online and I'm trying various of the new experiments. Like um, I bought a ticket to see Andrew Scott do a play live in an empty theater, for instance. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how theaters find different ways of making theatre happen, mm -hmm. you know, during in these bizarre circumstances. Yes, when we can't gather, how can we create a digital space where we yeah. can still feel gathering? Yeah, and the same with music and the same with lots of forms of performance. Mm -hmm. So as we approach kind of downtown Wortley, we're, we're seeing the, the, the beauty here of the little shops and the restaurants. Is there a favourite place you have uh, downtown? Absolutely, yeah. The Black Walnut um, is just outstanding in its, well, first of all, its pastries. You know, there's a particular scone. And, you know, if I was ever having a, lot, a really hard day, I'd say to myself, OK, I promised myself an oat and date scone from the Black Walnut. <laughs> you know? Also, it's a very relaxed, friendly space. Occasionally too friendly in that if I'm trying to get some work done, you know, people come up and talk to me all the time. You know? <laughs> but that's a good complaint to have. And um, when I heard about the shutdown, the first thing I did was rush into the Black Walnut and buy a $200 gift certificate, just as my little prayer that they would open again afterwards. Because I know, you know, businesses are going to be lost during this. Um, so I've been doing my best to spend my money on the ones I care about. Or say, um, I went to the cinema the other day for the first time, our Highland Cinema um, on, on Warncliffe. Um, 
I was nervous, but I thought, you know, there has to be cinema when we come out of this, so I'm going to try it out here. And luckily the Highland matinees tend to be pretty quiet and not many people there anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Would you feel, do you feel like you're more conscious of where you're spending your dollar definitely, during these times? Definitely. And, you know, it's become a kind of a, a running joke that the kids will say to me, let's order pizza from Bondi's because, you know, we have to invest in the economy. You know, it's patriotic. <laughs> Let's get more cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing how we are now more invested, I feel like, in the community around us. Yeah, uh, like, okay, the other day our compost, kitchen compost tub broke, mm-hmm. and Chris was going to go buy one at Home Depot, and I was like, no, no, hang on, let's call Tucky's Hardware here in the village. They might have it, and they did, and so I was able to keep those dollars in the village. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same, I've always sought out, you know, doctors and dentists and, and used the pharmacy in the village to try and keep it going. So we've touched on, um, you know, the community feeling of Wortley. And I feel like as artists, a lot of the time, we're, we're kind of latently grabbing uh, inspiration from things that float by. Do you feel like the community feel of Wortley impacts your work or makes its way into your work? I do, yeah, because even though I tend to choose quite, you know, high stakes plots to write about um, in something like Room, which I'd be best known for, I have quite a, quite a bit of contemporary fiction where the background is very kind of relaxed everyday life. You know, I'll have a scene in a playground or something. So I, I'm sure that my more, you know, low-key experiences living in Wortley Village over the years have crept in too. Yeah. Do you think that uh, as artists we have a, responsib- a, a responsibility to uh, create work that reflects the community we're in? I don't know. I would hate to tell anyone what they need to make art about um i think in practice if you have a healthy say city with artists in it you will get art about that world but but you can't make it a requirement and i would say the same about speaking for any group that you're from i mean i feel i'm very much you know identified as being irish but i don't feel i have to set any one of my books there i find i double back to ireland um maybe every third or fourth book you know, again, quite a few of my books um, have lesbian storylines in them, but they don't all. And I would hate it if anyone said, like, oh, you need to speak up for the lesbians, you must, you know. So I, I kind of treasure artistic freedom that way. Um, it's probably more that I feel artists have a responsibility to help cultivate the art of others in their community. You know, I, I really like, um, I don't know, things like being, as, you know, um, being a subscriber at the Grand, that kind of thing, you know, feeling that I, I go to concerts here, I go to Sunfest, I, I keep, you know, I take part as a consumer of arts um, in the artistic life of my community. So if you're writing about a character who has a different background from your own, what do you have to do to ensure fair representation? Well, you probably, you know, we have to think about it more and more these days, I think. I think it's something um, that published writers and um, particularly white writers used to be dead casual about and not at all now and that's all to the good you know you you should always have to say to yourself why am i writing this why am i putting this element in the story and above all do i think i'm going to manage to get it right so i've written books set in many historical eras and uh, you know i always say to myself okay is this is this something i click with enough that i can immerse myself in the sources and get a sense of what it was like to live then um, so you know if you think you can get any character to be really convincing on the page by doing enough research and not just book research but life research then great but you you really need to ask yourself that question first rather than just saying I have a right you know (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be turning right down Elmwood Avenue. So I'll just make a right here. Oh, I'm seeing the big normal school on our left. And for years we were afraid we'd lose that building because they didn't quite know what to do with it. But mm -hmm. um, it's a wonderful old Victorian building standing on our central green. But luckily the YMCA took it over and they've made it this amazing space. My son's done um, cooking lessons in there and it's got this sort of majestic hall in the middle. I've never been inside, but what I always appreciate from the uh, outside of that building is the marriage between the old Victorian stone and the glass and how... Yes, that's right. They put a lovely modern glass column in the middle for, I think, you know, lift and accessibility. Mm -hmm. It's great when a building kind of wears its modern side um, without embarrassment. I'm thinking of, is it the School of Music in Toronto? Um, it's got like an, an old bit and then a totally modern bit. Um, the ROM again has done a beautiful kind of marriage of a Victorian building and um, a highly modern one. Mm -hmm. uh, so where do you think London has the most room to grow? Hmm, good question. I think there, there can sometimes be a kind of a small c conservatism or safeness or timidity about it. Um, I think it can really help when when people with um, outsized ambitions like, say, Dennis Garnham at the Grand move in and, and have, you know, bigger and bolder expectations for a place than those of us who've been living here all the time have. Um, so I think it could certainly, it could certainly afford to get a bit more political. I was quite amazed, for instance, that our, you know, um, at, at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, that was a big demo down in the park. Um, I wasn't even at it because I was so afraid of COVID. I just went to the smaller Workley Village one, which was a few hundred people. But it was a bigger crowd than there was at Donald Trump's rally that week. And I think that surprised a lot of us. So um, there's clearly, you know, room for London to become a, a, more, a more awake and politically um, lively place than many of us thought of it. And so we're just going to be turning uh, left here to go south on Cathcart Street. Uh, and so with a little bit more political awakeness, what do you hope uh, changes come? What do, you, what do you mean? Is it diversity? Is it acceptance? What? Yeah, I would like to see London's culture become more diverse. I think there are already certain pockets in which that happens. Like, I think it's, it's a very, uh, you know, accepted thing now for instance for the the summer festivals you know to be hugely international a festival like sunfest mm -hmm. but perhaps there's a bit of a tendency to to keep that in its little bubble mm -hmm. and say you know that bit is sunfest but then you know the, the the i don't know the 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 big music names we might see at a venue like centennial hall um might be a more you know conventional mix i'm probably bad mouthing their program there <laughs> Yeah, I love, uh, I love the summer festivals. Uh, do you have a relationship to the summer festivals here in London? We, we nearly always go to Sunfest, yes. And um, also the Fringe, I'm very fond of. It's, you know, theatre at its liveliest. It's low budget and it's very um, passionate. Often the performers will be doing shows based on their own lives, you know. So um, to t we took our, our, she was 11, I think, to a show in which a woman not only recounted her childbirth blow by blow, but took out her glass eye and showed it around. And I just thought, oh, this is superb, <laughs> you know? This is what we don't get in, in bigger, more big budget theatres, you know? This kind of, you know, direct contact with uh, someone, you know, they're just six feet away and you've only paid 15 bucks. And, and the whole thing is a rough-edged but very passionate feel. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there's something about the, the, the grittiness of the fringe that uh, yeah. can be really inspiring. Absolutely, and it doesn't mean low standards, it just means that you, you play to the strengths of fringe shows. You know, you go for things that don't necessarily need a big budget, but where the, um, you know, the passion and the talent of the performers is what matters. And often the same performers will come year after year, so it's like sort of waiting for the, the traveling circus to come back every summer. So something I hear a lot about in uh, theatre, you know, there's a specific canon that uh, a lot of communities are uh, really familiar with and, and want to go to the theatre to see. Uh, but then there's also um, other stories that may not fit into that mould. Uh, how do you think we bridge the gap and try and bring uh, those stories and into uh, larger theatre spaces? Well, I suppose you use... Um the way publishers will use their kind of guaranteed bestsellers to then um, subsidize the riskier projects. You know, they'll publish their poetry in a way backed by their celebrity memoir. And similarly with theater, um, I know I've seen some incredibly lively shows in the McManus um, space at the Grand that mightn't have been possible to put on the big stage. Or at Stratford, I remember going three years in a row to see um, Peter... Do I mean Hinton? Peter Hinton? Yeah, his, his, uh, his three-part play called The Swan. Mm. Um, extraordinary show, and we saw that in the smaller studio space there. Again, you might not have got the audience in the bigger theatres, but once, uh, once a theatre has a reputation, that trust can kind of extend to more, um, you know, projects that the audience might not know in advance that they want to see, but they'll say, oh, it's all at Stratford, it must be good. So I think it's probably a very tricky balancing act for them to, uh, to curate programs that include the riskier stuff they want, but also enough guaranteed crowd pleasers, you know. I, I'm glad I don't have that job. <laughs> it must be extremely tricky to try and work out, um, you know, how to balance the budget and still do work that really excites you. Is there a show you believe balances bringing something new and old together? I'd say an outstanding example um, is Hamilton. I've been a fan of it ever since I read a piece about it in The New Yorker years ago. And then I was going to be in New York for one night on my own. And my brother was living there at the time and I didn't even tell my brother I was in town. <laughs> I paid a scalper 300 bucks for a ticket to Hamilton. <laughs> I was shocked at myself and I thought, Okay, you know, the pressure's really on for this to be an amazing show, but it was the best night I've spent in the theatre. And I think what's extraordinary about it is that it's, it's a meeting between the 21st century and the 18th. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, for people to call it inaccurate is, is, the wrong, is the wrong kind of commentary. Somebody the other day was saying that it's really, it's like a form of fan fiction. It's a deliberate, fresh take on something. It's, a, it's an interaction between contemporary performers and performers of colour interacting with the with the founding fathers it's not meant to be just a sort of you know truer version it's it's a conversation it's a wrap between different eras and i think that's set a really interesting precedent for ways in which we can make the old new um i think canadian audiences have got very used to the casting of diverse actors in you know the traditional old white parts but that's only that's only one way that you can liven up these projects. Um, I think there are all sorts of interesting things we can probably do with scripts or storylines as well. Obviously, we're, you're a storyteller. So why do you tell stories? I just get a pleasure out of writing in any form that I have never got from anything else. Um, I remember being, I think, seven, walking home from school and suddenly getting words in my head and I, I kind of stopped still and in my head I formed them into some little poem about a fairy and, you know, I, 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 
I can't describe how exciting this was just to put together words that had never been together before. It felt absolutely magical. Um, and I love all the sort of interactions with an audience in various forms, but that is secondary because, you know, first of all, I get the pleasure just at home, me looking at my computer, making up a sentence that has never been said before. Um, and it's odd because writing, you might think, is a very introverted career and I'm very extroverted. I love to socialize, but I just get such a buzz from putting the words together. Um, and the important thing is to keep, to keep it fresh, to keep getting that buzz. And so for me, novelty is crucial. I've been at this so long and I never, never really did any other job since I was sacked as a chambermaid. So um, for me, trying new genres, for instance, has been crucial in keeping it, um, keeping it scary, actually, in a good sense. You know, the, the zone I was in when I was trying to write the script of Room or writing my first children's book, you know, feeling like, what am I doing? I'm an amateur, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is so exciting. You don't want to be in a smug or comfortable space with your art. How do you go and seek out discomfort? Well, I suppose it's a, it's, it's a fine line because I don't want to seek out something that I think I'd be really bad at. Um, for instance, one of my plays, um, a composer asked, could he make an opera of it? And he said, would you like to write the libretto? And I spent about a morning going, ooh, yes, write a libretto. And then I thought, I don't really like opera and I have no reason to think that I'd be able to figure out where to put the words <laughs> so they'd sound right if sung. So, um, you know, that was an example of a project I said no to and somebody else adapted it. But um, other projects I think, ooh, I've never written a film script before, but I've seen a million films and I, I have a feel for how I think the story might work on film. And I don't know, you just, you sort of, you look out for that feeling of nervous excitement in yourself, I suppose. As someone who spans many different genres and forms, what comes first, story or genre, or do they come at the same time? No, I never just pick a genre. It's never a sort of strategic decision. Um, it could be a character or it could be a story, and sometimes it's a real story, something that's happened in the past, in the long past. Um, but it's nearly always... Yeah, the story that comes first. And um, then I try and figure out what genre it should be in. You know, what genre would bring out its strengths. Um, for instance, I think the first time I wrote a radio play, it's because I was writing about a witch trial in Ireland in the 17th century. And I wanted to concentrate on the, the several days that the accused woman was in jail. Um, and I thought, okay, it's a, it's, it's a locked up, isolated jail piece. This needs to be just sound. I don't want to see her sitting in her cell. I, I want this to be all voices in the dark. So I thought, okay, it's clearly radio. Um, so that was an example of where it's not that I ever thought, oh, I must write radio drama. Um, it's just the story seemed to require it. And again, I try and make the style um, suit the story rather than having a kind of a Emma Donoghue house style. So some of my friends read several of my books before they met me and they had no idea that that was all one person. They hadn't really noticed the name on the cover. So I love that because it means that I've kind of served the story rather than, you know, trying to write something that was representative of me. Mm -hmm. So we're turning left on Langarth Street, which uh, is a street that has uh, significant importance to you. <laughs> Why would that be? Well, um, not only have I lived on this street a long time, but um, I have very happy memories of a tree that's no longer here because um, it's, it's our son's creation myth, right? I was seven and a half months pregnant and, um, you know, expecting our baby would be a Christmas baby. And then suddenly in the night there was a windstorm and a massive tree, which I had never consciously seen before. I was, I was out on the, um, 
the city-owned bit of grass out front. Uh, it suddenly fell on our car, our porch, the neighbor's car and the neighbor's porch. I honestly never seen this tree before. <laughs> it's an area of big trees. I don't really notice them individually, but suddenly, you know, we'd, we tried to get out of the door in the middle of the night and there was branches in our face. Um, and we ran around the side of the house um, and I remember there was a, a hydro employee there and he said, careful, you're about to step on a downed line, you know. So um, anyway, the neighbours took us in and gave us pumpkin muffins. It was a very Wortley Village moment. And then the next day I gave birth to Finn early. So, um, you know, he loves the story. It's his kind of heroic creation myth, you know. Um, but somehow the sheer drama of that moment and, you know, the lights of our squashed car uh, stayed on for several days. It looked like Godzilla had been by. The car was absolutely squashed by this. Um, yeah, that, that means it's a street I'll never forget. You know? <laughs> I never understand people who move house regularly because to me, when you've lived somewhere and maybe especially if you have kids there, you know, the place is so marked by your memories and has such uh, sort of fond associations. I can't really imagine moving unless I had some very good reason to. Yeah, and it changes a little by little over the years. Like just the last few years, we have these, these uh, little mini libraries, these book boxes where people give away books, you know? And just those tiny details can make an area feel so kind of um, friendly. Let's turn left on Mortley Road. You recently, uh, just like a few months ago, released a new, new book, The Pulled Stars. And uh, can you tell me a little bit uh, about what the, what the book's about? Sure, The Pull of the Stars, weirdly enough, is a pandemic novel, which I've brought out in the middle of a pandemic, um, quite by accident. I started writing it in 2018 on the train to Toronto. Um, I was, um, I accidentally left my laptop here charging, so I was on my way to Toronto to the International Festival of Authors, and to my horror, I had no laptop to write. So I had to read the magazine I had with me cover to cover. It was The Economist magazine. And I read an article about the flu pandemic of 1918, and I was so gripped by its atmosphere, the way, I don't know, it sounded more post-apocalyptic than traditional historical, in that this was a very modern, industrialized, electrified world, and suddenly, everything was shutting down and people were terrified of each other um, and you know wearing masks and you know soaking their scarves in carbolic or eucalyptus oil and um, carrying onions in their pockets such a weird mixture of the modern scientific and the kind of medieval superstitious so i thought i have to write a novel about that but i never thought it would be relevant to today you know so um i wrote the novel in 2019 and sold it and my publisher said oh we can't publish it in 2020 because you know the american election uh, will dominate the headlines. So let's put it off till 2021. So I delivered it um, the start of March and I really hadn't been paying much attention to the news because between going to rehearsals for the production of Room, which was about to open, and um, finishing the novel, you know, I was totally head down, buried, buried in my work. Um, so then when I delivered the novel and the Room production was cancelled and I just felt utterly crushed. And then my publishers emailed to me and said, you know, I think we'll bring your novel out in July because um, it's relevant to the pandemic and I was kind of horrified at first. I thought it seems, you know, in bad taste to be trying to sell any cultural product during a pandemic. But then I thought, no, it just makes more sense this year. It's part of the conversation. So it has given me a chance to do lots of interviews about not just how brave medical frontline health workers are, but um, what's that new phrase I learned the other day, social determinants of health. You know, because in, in 1918, as in 2020, pandemics aren't random. They hit those who are already weakened by all those underlying conditions of poverty and, and structural injustice. So um, it's funny how very relevant to today the novel turned out to be because it's all about, 
patients from the Dublin slums in an Irish hospital and the fact that you know they, they, they come to the hospital already so weakened by the years of bad air, bad water, tainted milk, um, lack of nutrition, too much childbearing given that it's Ireland, which is a very pronatalist culture. Luckily, not so much now. My mother had eight of us, and my sisters and I have only had, you know, maximum three. <laughs> Reasonable <laughs> I'm an numbers. only child, so I don't <laughs> even know. <laughs> oh, well, we consider that a tragedy. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how serendipitous that. Do you, do you think it's serendipitous that the pandemic I, happened? I do, really, because yeah. I suspect that there's a novel about a pandemic every year. We just only notice them in a year when there really is a pandemic. Yeah, but what's eerie is how close the echoes are for me because, you know, I, I, when I would read the headlines in the last few months, I remember in particular um, when Boris Johnson came up with that headline, no, with that slogan, stay alert. I thought, oh, that's so like a bit of 1918 government propaganda, you know, vague, you know, meant to be reassuring, but actually just makes the individual feel uneasy. Like, is it their fault if they get the flu, you know? Do you ever put uh, personal stories in your, in your writing? Yes, I do. And the funny thing is, if I put them in my contemporary writing, people often would guess or, or might assume that there's something autobiographical in my work. But if I put them in my historical fiction, uh, they, nobody tends to think they're mine. But actually, say, one of the birth stories in The Pull of the Stars um, is mine because I was kind of, I was trying to choose interesting storylines for, for the way births might go, given that the novel is set in this tiny little labor ward slash fever ward. Um, so I sort of used one birth crisis of a friend of mine, and then I thought, ooh, I'll put in my own one, because I, um, uh, I had you know, one thing go wrong in, in uh, the birth of Finn, and I had these great midwives and also a local um, gynecologist, and between them all, you know, they, they made sure everything went well. But I remember at that moment thinking, oh, this is what good healthcare means. I go home happy tomorrow. If I was in a different part of the world, um, I could die of this. This is exactly what women die of. So I, I suppose I've been feeling quite strongly ever since that, that moment that, um, you know, healthcare is, I, we suppose we take it for granted here, but it really is one of the things that makes Canada most precious is that we all get healthcare. Um, and, but we don't get it equally. I mean, I've, I've read about um, women in very isolated reserves, for instance, who, you know, they can't get maternity care there and they have to fly south and be away from their families for months on end, you know. So that would have been a very different kind of birth experience. So, um, yeah, it was great fun putting a, you know, a medical drama into my novel with, with the perspective being the nurse who's desperately trying to fix the situation rather than the patient. So, um, yes, it's always fun to take your own stuff and do some kind of reversal on it. And no. has anyone uh, close to you noticed that in your uh, in Oh, your I book probably now? told them all about it. I'm a big blabbermouth. Yeah. <laughs> and I sent a copy to the, uh, to the midwives and another copy to the gynecologist to say, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> You're in here. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Here's another charming new Wortley Village thing. We've got these free herb box going up everywhere. A few of them have been raided by herb thieves, would you believe, who drive around. <laughs> Clearly, people from outside Wortley Village drive around, steal the pots, but the pots have survived. <laughs> this is just so cute. It's adorable, I and I love that spirit of community giving. Yeah, and yeah. You, you know, you could easily make fun, too. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, actually, when we first moved in um, to our house, um, a neighbour came around with pie, and I was thinking, uh-oh, okay, this is, this is too nice, this is creepy, this is Stepford. Mm -hmm. I thought there's going to be some hideous agenda. It'll be a really conservative place if they're bringing pie. But yeah. no, turns out, no. 
They can bring pie in and not be a conservative place. It's just yeah. homey but not conservative. <laughs> I know, I'm really excited. I, one of my go-tos is cheesecake. So when I oh, move yeah? into my new place, I'm hoping to uh, adorn my neighbors with cheesecakes. <laughs> okay, uh, they will love you. So we're, we're going to cross the street here uh, at Duchess and Wortley. So let's uh, make sure we look both ways. Okay, we're good. <laughs> and we're going to end in the Wortley Green where beautiful century trees, that building we spoke about earlier. What do you love most about this space? It's open. Um, during the lockdown, when we were used to taking lots of little walks, but we were just desperate for a bit more space, we came here the first really warm afternoon to throw a frisbee round. And um, it was just bliss to be able to, you know, stretch out farther than, than the traditional six feet and, um, and lie on the grass and, and be outdoors. So I treasure it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the trees are lovely and old too. There's nothing like old trees for uplift. Mm -hmm. Something I love about it is that all of the houses surrounding it are facing, uh, are facing the green. Yeah, and, that's true. And it gives it such a community, a community sense, sensibility to it. Yeah, and you know, I'm looking at one house where our daughter was in daycare as a baby, and I'm looking at the, the former normal school where the kids have done courses and camps and so on. So yeah, this whole place has the sort of imprints of our family all over it. Thanks for coming on a grand walk with me. I have to say that was pretty cool. I stan Emma Donahue a lot. Looking at the YMCA, I reflect on our conversation about the beauty of the blend of old and new architecture, how these two styles from different centuries can coexist in a balanced and harmonious way, not unlike the marriage of old and new we see in the production of Hamilton. We are living in such divisive times, I hope we can find a way to balance our opposing views and find some harmony for ourselves. The Grand Walks would not be possible without our lovely team here at the theatre, including Dennis Garnham, Lauren Rebello, Jen Matthews, Air Nulette, Suzanne Lancier, Deb Harvey, Lindy Hansen, Nora McLeod, Jake Dunbar, Lacey George, and Megan Watson. Special thanks to friends Rob Novakovich, Camille Schubert, Jesse Potter, and Frank Donato for brainstorming with me. Thanks to you, the listener, and looking forward to getting some more steps in with you soon.